There was a story from the American Civil War that I'd like to share with you. There was a northerner uh, who bought a southerner. There was a northerner who bought a slave girl at an auction. And as they left the auction, money having exchanged hands, the man turned to the girl who he had just bought and said, you're free. She turned to him in amazement and said, do you mean, do you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yep, you can do whatever you like. Can I be whatever I want to be? You can be whatever you want to be. Can I even go wherever I want to go? You are free to go wherever you like. Then she looked back at him and said, well, in that case, I want to go with you. She saw something of his character in those three questions, and she had just been redeemed and ransomed and said, if you're like that, if you're going to give me freedom, then I want to hang around with you. That theme of redemption is key to our understanding of chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Ruth. I hope you've got on your lap. This idea of redemption, of purchase, of ownership, is what the book of Ruth is all about. If you've missed the last two weeks, here's a slide that will give you just a kind of a peep backwards before we head forwards. It's about a journey, a negative journey in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab. Uh, Elimelech leads his family away from Bethlehem, from God's land, and says, there's a famine in this land. I've heard there's food in Moab. I'm going to go whatever the cost. Verses 1 to 5, it's a tragic story. Ten years of tragedy. And so you could say it's a, it's a story of poverty and emptiness. Empty hands, pictures on the wall. She's uh, Naomi, one of the main characters, and Ruth, another of the main characters, lose loved ones very quickly. It's a tragic story, but there are signs of hope as we get to the end of chapter 1. They return from Moab back to Bethlehem, and there's a little clue if you've got your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 22, as the barley harvest was beginning, there are sprigs or signs or shoots of hope. Horrible joke at that point. There are signs of hope. And then chapter 2, we meet the hero of the book. We meet a man called Boaz, whose name should be said with authority and strength because that's what it means. We don't know if he was a hunk or a poldark or a Mr. Darcy, but he was a man of substance and worthiness because he was a man of godliness. That's why he was such a catch. And we're just seeing signs that empty hands are going to be made full, that uh, in the place of poverty, there's going to be plenty. And those two um, phrases really give us a key into the whole book. And now we land in at chapter 3, verse 1. There was a bit of a spoiler last week as we met Boaz because we were thinking, who is this guy? And what on earth is a kinsman redeemer? That's the question that comes, or a, a covenant redeemer, it was in our, in our reading this morning. And that key concept of redeemer, redemption, a kinsman redeemer, a covenant redeemer, what does that mean? Because Naomi knew what it mean and Ruth did not. So at the end of chapter 2 and in verse uh, 20, Naomi can say, now that's important. Boaz is not just a generous man, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And the key concept is, so what? What does that mean? You're not going to hear that uh, in the playground these days. A kinsman redeemer was a provision of God in Israelite law, in the Bible law, to say and to protect people who are in need. When God's people were led by God into the promised land, 
Everyone had a portion, a parcel of land, a bit like the frontier experience. Going into the plains of America, everyone could stake their claim. Well, you couldn't stake your claim in Israel, but God gave you some land, and it was your inheritance. One way to look at the Old Testament is, it's not an issue about children and child-rearing and the son of promise. It's about land. How on earth is God going to give his people a land? It's a big issue in the Old Testament. And so every family had some land, but what if you lost it? What if your husband led you from Bethlehem to Moab? What if he pawned off, he sold off all of the land and you went to make a fresh start, but you left everything behind and you've come back with nothing? You've got no hope, you've got no inheritance because your husband, Elimelech, has sold off the land. Naomi says, chapter 2, verse 20 and following, Boaz, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And that's a provision from the law to say, someone within your close family who out of their own resources, out of their own generosity, could buy back the land so that no longer would you be hopeless or homeless. They would dig into their pockets, they would get out their Amex card, they would go to the land registry and say, I know Elimelech sold the land, but I want to buy it back. And the person, because of the way the Lord was written, would have to agree if it was one of the kinsmen redeemers. And Naomi can say, Boaz, he's our guy. He's not just generous. Well, from poverty, we could have plenty if he buys the land. From famine, we could be full if he buys the land. But Ruth, Ruth, you've got to bag your man. And that's the first profound statement we learn from uh, Ruth chapter 3. I've not called it anything so crass, but I have called it the, uh, the power of faith-filled initiative. Faith-filled initiative. All mother-in-law jokes will be left at this point. But I want you to look carefully at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, we can make mother-in-law jokes, but the thing is, Naomi is different. Naomi gets a hard time sometimes, but the more I've looked at Ruth, you think, here is a woman of God. Here is a woman in hard times who trusts God, and here is a woman to be reckoned with. I think she's a force of nature, but she's also extremely wise. Look at what she says back in chapter 1, verse 9. Just flick back. When she's lost everything, what Naomi wants more than anything is for God, chapter 1, verse 9, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She's not thinking of herself. She's completely other-centered. And she says to Orpah and to Ruth, if you want to know blessing, if you want a future, then the only way that's going to happen is if the Almighty God blesses you. But in chapter 3, Naomi sees a wonderful opportunity about bagging your man. And so she wants to school her daughter-in-law in the art of relational initiative taking. In verses 1 to 5, this is the picture that you see. Naomi is looking Ruth squarely in the eye, and she says, now love is your opportunity. There's an eligible bachelor, and his name is Boaz. You met him, uh, you've been working in his field, but now's the time for initiative. Now's the time that no longer will you have to speak to him in the field. There's an opportunity for you to speak to him in private because it's winnowing time, and I know where he's going to be. He's going to be on the threshing floor. That's verses 1 to 5. Now, we don't live in the uh, horticultural environment that uh, Naomi and Ruth lived in, 
And so winnowing, well, winnowing would happen at the end of the barley harvest. All the hard work and sweat is done. You'd find a secluded corner, maybe the other side of a hillside, maybe as part of a town. And in the evening, when perhaps there was a cool breeze, you'd get your fork, you'd put it in the barley, you'd chuck the barley up in the air, and then everything that was heavy, i.e. the seed, would drop down, and you would secure those bits, and everything that was light and transitory, the husk, that would blow away. And so the men would do this at the end of the barley season. And Naomi says, now here is your opportunity. You need to go and get your glad rags on. You need to perfume behind your ears. You need to dress yourself up as best you can. And you need to go to Boaz and you need to say, have you ever thought of marrying me? That's really what's going on in verses 1 to 5. Look at verse 3. Wash and perfume yourself. Put your best clothes on. Then go down to the threshing floor in private. He's not amongst the men anymore. He's not amongst the other servants. It'll be you and him if you play your cards right. But don't let him know you're there, verse 3, until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do next. Now listen. If you are under 18 at this point and you're listening to this in the original language, I guarantee you your parents would have their hands over your ears really quickly. This goes from a U to a 15 very, very quickly in these sentences. Naomi is saying more to Ruth than you need to doll yourself up. You, uh, you need to kind of put a comb through your hair. She's not just saying that. There's something deeper going on. Why? Make a note of 2 Samuel 12, verse 20. 2 Samuel 12, verse 20. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, King David, having mourned for a long time the death of his son, he does something very similar. He washes himself. He puts oil on his head and on his hands and on his body. He puts his best clothes on. He's not trying to date anyone, but what he is doing is signifying the time of mourning has come to an end. No longer is that past event going to define me. And so wise and godly Naomi is looking Ruth in the eye and saying, Here's your opportunity to go and find someone who is a godly man, a worthy man, who will protect you and care for you and provide for you. We know where he's going to be, but also clean yourself up, smell as good as you can, bathe as quickly as you can, and go and bag yourself a godly man if you can. It's faith-filled initiative-taking, but also don't let your mourning define you anymore. Don't let that time continue in your life. That's come to an end. Kind of, okay, I'm moving on now. You've been a widow, but now there's a new opportunity in your life. It's faith-filled initiative. And also, if you get doled up, you'll smell better. And that's not going to harm your chances. And so here is Naomi, wise godly Naomi. She knows the universal fact that's true in our household especially. Men are always in a better mood after they've had a nice meal. Wait until he falls asleep, and then go and uncover his feet. But, verse 4, note the place where he is lying. Now, this is crucial, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. There's something funny, whether it's just my sense of humor. You can imagine this going wrong, where uh, Ruth is kind of getting a bit sleepy, and she fails to pay attention, and she goes and uncovers the wrong feet. 
you could just, just see something going wrong. It's, it's dimly lit. It's, uh, the whole of chapter 3 happens in one day. It's, it's, it's dimly lit and dark. And she looks at the wrong ankles and kind of, oh, oh no, it's the wrong guy. And so Ruth is looking very carefully. And Naomi is saying, pay attention. Look your best. But it's a very, very vulnerable situation for Ruth to be in. Because it's dark. Because it's the wild west of the Bible. Because you don't know how Boaz is going to respond. And this thing of going and uncovering your feet and lying down, this is not something you do to anybody. You'd only do this to somebody who you would long to marry you. And in this time, verses 1 to 5, both women are exercising faith-filled or faith-fueled initiative. There's terrifying possibilities going on in the subtlety of this chapter. You've got this young woman heading out when it's twilight, the most dangerous part of the day. It's twilight in the time of the judges. In the judges. It's the threshing floor where it will be full of hard-working, sweaty men who would have had their fill of food and beer perhaps as well or wine. And it's a young woman walking out alone into danger, into vulnerable situation. And Naomi says, this is your opportunity. Two women, faith-filled initiative. Go and claim the covenant because Boaz, he's your kinsman redeemer. He's a worthy man. (coughs) Friends, it's very easy for us to sit on our backsides and just pray. But according to the Bible, faith-filled initiative is not something just for Naomi or just for Ruth. God's sovereign purposes are worked out through people, men and women, who have faith-filled initiative. Think of Moses' mum. Moses is going to lose his life as an infant unless mummy does something about it. So she makes a mini ark, tar-covered little Moses basket, and puts him again in a vulnerable place out onto the waters. Think of Paul. Paul going around the Mediterranean, planting churches, huge risk to his life, refusing to keep his lips closed. Hasn't got the resources to do it, and so he prays that God would bless his ministry. God's sovereign purposes are nearly always worked out through faith-filled initiative. Think of 30 people meeting in Epsom Primary School all by themselves a few years ago. What is it? It's faith-filled initiative. Is going and trying something, praying that God would bless human initiative, knowing our own limitations. Think of Paul, I'm going to go to Macedonia, and God says no, but he tried. Because so often faith is spelt risk. And here you've got Naomi making a plan. There's nothing less spiritual going on here. She's making a plan and encouraging Ruth to take initiative and to trust God for what's ahead. It's the power of faith-filled initiative. But then verses 6 to 9, well, you've got a courageous plea or a courageous proposal. Verses 6 to 9. Look at what happens next. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. If you spend time reading this slowly, it's as if you can hear the hearts beating. I'm sure Ruth would be incredibly nervous at this point. There she is, he's anticipating what's about to go on. Can I find the right legs? Better find the right legs. Yep, that's Boaz. I see him walking to the grain pile. He's going to lay down in front of it to keep it safe from robbers. 
and he's going to go to sleep. And then, like any parent of a young child who's trying to get them to sleep, you start to kind of peek. Have they gone to sleep? Can I creep out as the volume of the house is turned up? Can I creep out of the bedroom to safety? No, they're not asleep. I better stay a little bit longer, pat a little bit longer. It's kind of that image going on here of Ruth not dribbling out of her mouth as she lies down. She's not snoring. She's attentive and she's nervous and she's cautious and she's looking for the moment to do what her mother-in-law said. Verse 7. So she approaches quietly, and when she thinks that he's asleep, she uncovers his feet and she lay down. The language at this point is very ambiguous. It's sensual. We don't know if she's laying down perpendicular, parallel to Boaz. What we do know is nothing untoward is happening here, because they're both worthy people. They're godly man and a godly woman. And she's laying there until something happens in the middle of the night. Verse 8, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Now, at this point, I want to uh, turn up my male empathy. Because uh, the men get kind of bad press in the book of uh, Ruth, with the exception of Boaz. And I want to tell you a story of a truism that happens in our home. The, The children and I have a deal. Uh, If there is an issue in the night, you do not come to my side of the bed. But one time, someone broke the covenant that we have, one to another. And there I was in the middle of the night. I I have a spiritual gift of sleeping, and uh, I cannot be woken up. But something startled me in the middle of the night. And as I opened my eyes, I kid you not, four inches away from my nostrils, there were two eyes looking right back at me. And uh, words came out, Daddy, would you like to play with me now? Um, (laughs) The answer was no. In, in uh, no uncertain terms, we had words at that point and for the rest of the morning. It was way too early. And here is Ruth waiting nervously. She knows her line. Mother-in-law has given the line to say. She's done what she's been told. She's uncovered the feet. And we don't know quite what's going to happen next. How is Boaz going to respond? Is he going to chastise her? Is he going to embarrass her? Is he going to refuse her? Is he going to say, what on earth do you think you're doing? Is he going to react ferociously? We don't know. If you wake me up in the middle of the night, I'm pretty groggy. Um, What's Boaz going to say? Verse 9. Who are you? We don't know. I want to know what uh, intonation there was in that uh, question. If it was me, it would be very groggy. But who are you? Maybe, what in the world is going on here? Who are you? And Ruth responds, I'm your servant, Ruth. Now, this is interesting. We've seen this word before. It's in chapter 2, verse 13, where Ruth and Boaz meet for the first time. You've spoken kindly to your servant, chapter 2, 13. The word there is slave, worker. Um, Our friends that translated the Bible don't do us any favours here. It's a different word, but they translated it in the same way. Here, it's not, I'm a slave worker. It's It's a word that says, I'm available for a relationship with you. It's not just saying, uh, I'm your servant, let's get to work. It's saying, would you like a relationship with me? That's, that's the kind of the tone. And then all of a sudden, if you're a skier, did you notice? Ruth goes off piste. Ruth uh, has her own initiative. She stops following the plan from Naomi at this point. Back in verse 4, she was told, go and cover his feet, lie down. He will tell you what to do. Ruth 
Well, Ruth is a little bit of a chip off the old block. She's had a lot of uh, influence and time with Naomi. And she takes the bull by the horns and she keeps talking. Verse 9, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Boaz, I know you're a little bit sleepy, I know you're a bit groggy, and I know you're a chap, and men often need to be told at least twice the same thing for it to get through our thick heads. And so just in case you miss the importance of me uncovering your feet, I want you to be covered. I want to be covered by your protection, care, and love. I want to be provided for by you. I want you to marry me. Just in case you miss the significance of the uncovering of the feet, I will tell you with my own words. Spread the corner, verse 9, of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now this is pretty forward to say the least from Ruth. She kind of puts it out there. She's stepping out in faith. How is Boaz going to respond? You can imagine if, uh, again, if this is in the hands of a director, at this point there is a long pregnant pause, a kind of a zoom-in moment on Boaz's lips. What's he going to say? Shove off. No way. This is a Moabite proposing to an Israelite. This is an outsider to God's people and plans and purposes proposing to an insider. This is a worker who's proposing to her boss. Everything is against a positive answer at this point. A younger proposing to an older. What's he going to do? Spread the corner of your garment over me. This is something that only a husband does to a wife. Bring your protection over me. Bring me under your care. Let me enjoy and know your provision. I want to stay close to your side. As Chris said to the, to the children, it's the same word in chapter 2, verse 12, wings and garments. Basically, what Ruth is saying to Boaz, you remember that prayer you prayed for me? Well, you can answer your own prayer by doing what God would have you do. It's time for you to answer that prayer. It's that lovely moment, as every uh, husband knows, if you've got a Christian wife, where your wife quotes scripture back at you. There's nothing like it for being chastised or encouraged. And there's the principle here, friends, that so often we are God's answers to our own prayers. What do I mean? Here's an example. There you are, you're reading the book of James, and you're struck by the, uh, the imperative there is to welcome outsiders. And, you, and you're praying, and you're saying... Lord, please, would Emmanuel be a great place, a welcoming environment for outsiders? And as soon as the service ends, you're out of here. You don't talk to anyone apart from your own friends when you come. But Lord, I want you, please, to make the church a welcoming place. How do you think that's going to happen? It will start with you. It will start with you looking for an outsider. It will start with you turning your chair to someone you don't know. It will start with you setting your alarm clock earlier, stopping whatever you're watching on TV, and getting here at 10 o'clock so you can fellowship with people, not rushing away, staying so you can enjoy fellowship with one another. That's what we're about, word, community, but also mission. What about evangelism? So often we are the answer to our own prayers. God, I want you, please, to do a mighty work in Epsom Manual. I want you to save people. I want you to tell people the gospel. Well, how's that going to happen? It starts with me, and it starts with you. Yeah, but I'm so weak, I can't say anything. I'm so... It starts with you and you praying to the Lord of the harvest to give you encouragement and strength. And then it starts with you having faith-filled initiative to share the gospel with your faltering words or to share an invitation 
with your work colleague, with your neighbour. It starts with you. So often, we are the answer to our own prayers. Not always, but often. It's just two examples. Welcoming, evangelism. But thirdly, the story continues. What is Boaz going to say? Notice I kind of put the pause in there. Well, it's a hope-filled promise. It's coming any time. And keep going. And again, voila. Verses 10 to 18. So there's the pregnant pause. We're waiting. What is Boaz going to say? The gauntlet's been thrown down. Will you marry me? Will you answer the prayer that you prayed that God would provide someone for me and you're the guy? Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz, again, uses the word hesed, kindness. In coming to see me in the barn, so to speak, you show me a great kindness, a kindness even greater than you being willing to cleave yourself to Naomi and come back to Bethlehem. There's a wonderful tone of humility in these verses. Boaz realises he's not the greatest catch. He's older than her. But he also knows the reason that uh, Ruth has come back is not just so that she might find rest in God's provision for a husband for her. She longs to find the kinsman redeemer in Boaz so that Naomi will be cared for as well. That's why it's an even greater kindness. Not only has Ruth come back to Bethlehem with Naomi, she longs for her to know rest as well. Despite these huge differences of age and ethnicity, gender clearly, young and old, what Ruth longs for is for rest and for these two worthy people, herself and Boaz, to become one. We can hear the wedding bells are ringing in the background as we get through to the end of the chapter. Going to the chapel, going to get married, and then we get to verse 12. And then there's a clangor or a spanner that comes in the works, and you're thinking, whoa, what's going on? I thought everything was going so well. Although it is true, verse 12, that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. There's someone closer to you in the family tree, in the family lineage, who has the responsibility to care for you before I do. And I love you to bits. And if they don't do it, I'm going to marry you in a heartbeat, says Boaz, verse 13. So stay here because there's danger outside. You don't need to be outside in the middle of the night. It's the care and the compassion of a worthy man, the godly man, Boaz, that we saw in chapter 2 as well. Stay here until the sun rises. Then you can go back. I don't want anyone to think anything untoward happened here. I don't want you to be in danger. Stay here for the night. And just think how much sleep either of them got that night. I reckon it was very little. I mean, here's Boaz. Um, am I going to marry her tomorrow or not? Um, is this other guy, is he going to come forth and say, no, no, she's mine? Is Boaz going to uh, have the courage to go before the people in Bethlehem and say, I declare to you my love for an outsider? And I know she's a Moabitess. And I know she's younger than me, but I love her a bit. And I want to marry her unless you come in first, kinsman redeemer. Imagine Ruth thinking, I've got to wait for 24 hours And then I'm going to find out who my husband is going to be. Is it going to be Boaz, who I love, and I really hope it's him? Or is it going to be this other person I don't even know? 
very little sleep that night. And verses 15 to 17, Boaz's kindness once again comes to the fore. Give me the shawl. Give me the, the garment that you've worn. I want to give you loads of grain. And it's just another sign from uh, poverty to plenty, from famine to fullness, that points forward to what will happen in chapter 4 next week. See, the, uh, the generosity of the kinsman redeemer, this full shore kind of shows us that. And then this tiny little domestic soap opera. I trust you can see the glory of the gospel. In a time when there's danger all around for Ruth, she finds safety and security as she trusts herself to her redeemer. And that's something that all of us need to do. Not trust ourselves to Boaz, to the one to whom Boaz points to. It's a picture of a faith-filled initiative that made me think in Mark 5 of another woman who has faith-filled initiative. Do you know the story in Mark 5? There is a lady who's had a tremendous amount of bleeding for 12 years and her experience is shaped. Her life is ruined by this internal condition. And she hears that Jesus is in town. So she goes to him and along with this huge crowd surrounds Jesus. Mark tells us twice that the crowd is impressing in on Jesus, that they're touching him. They're crowding against him. And so Jesus says, somebody touch me. You can imagine the disciples saying, well, yeah, everyone's touching you, Jesus. But that's not what he meant. Someone's touching me with faith. I think that's what he meant. The crowd were literally jamming in on Jesus. They were close to him. And when Jesus says, who touched me? And the lady comes forward with great courage. And Jesus said, it was your faith that healed you. It was your faith that healed you. It strikes me that we can do just the same. We can be very close to Jesus. We can increase our church attendance. We can increase our, our book resources. We can do good things. We can come close to Jesus but not know him, not have faith in him. Ruth could have done that. She could have been close to Boaz. She could have stayed in the field. She could not have faith-filled initiative. She could not have gone to him. She could not have claimed the covenant through him. But surely Ruth... And this poor lady in Mark 5 are teaching us the same thing. Two women who are teaching us what we have done. We've gone and clung to our Redeemer. Or they are pictures of what we must do, we should do. Come to our Redeemer, to Jesus. With nothing in our hands but clinging to him. Ruth had nothing. She threw herself on his mercy. She was vulnerable. She was humble. She reached out to him with no rights, no resources. We need his Hesed, we need God's kindness just as much as Ruth needed Boaz's kindness. Why don't you ask him personally to be your redeemer? And then just like that uh, slave girl at the beginning as part of the American Civil War, what you'll find is if you know Jesus is your redeemer, you'll find you'll be truly free. Let's pray.